Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good afternoon, uh, everybody. Welcome to the, uh, the Heritage uh, Foundation, especially um, grateful to you for, for joining us on, um, on such a wintry day here in, in November. Uh, and, it's uh, Yorkshire weather. Yes, absolutely perfect, perfect weather. Um, I'm Niall Gardner, the director of the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom. I'll be moderating uh, today's uh, discussion. And we have uh, three terrific guests joining us from, from London for a very timely uh, discussion of the latest developments on, on Brexit, but also the big picture with regard to a US-UK uh, free trade uh, deal. Our first uh, guest is uh, the Right Honourable David Davis, uh, MP, UK Member of Parliament for Halton Price and Howden, uh, former UK Secretary of State uh, for exiting the European Union. In the middle, we have uh, the Right Honourable Owen Patterson, MP, UK Member of Parliament for North Shropshire, uh, former UK Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, and former Secretary of State for Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs. Uh, and lastly, uh, we have Shankar Singham, uh, Head of Trade at the Centre for Economic and Business Research, Director of International Trade and the Competition Unit at the Institute of Economic Affairs in, in London. Uh, and so a superb panel to address the, uh, the very latest uh, developments from, from London. There have been quite a few of those developments uh, today. Uh, so the first part of our discussion, I'll be asking questions directly of our, uh, of our guests. The, the second half, we will open the discussion up to, uh, to members of the, of the audience, members of the press, so who, um, who can ask uh, uh, their questions. So an, an opening uh, question uh, for our guests, um, and perhaps, uh, uh, David, if you could respond first. Um, what is your reaction to uh, the Prime Minister's Brexit a deal which has just been unveiled and is a subject of tremendous uh, controversy in, in London, to put, to put it mildly. Yeah, well, it's a very bad deal. Um, I hope you like the way we choreographed all this to make this more interesting for you. <laughs> um, but the, it, it's a very poor deal um, from all sorts of points of view. I mean, first start off by understanding this is a huge opportunity, that, that, or should be a huge opportunity done properly, you know. Uh, World trade needs a Philip. It's, it's been stagnating. Uh, the direction of um, policy travel on regulation and free trade has been poor. Needed a new player, a new big player in the G7 to sort of free themselves to, to come onto the field. And this will deny that. This will actually stop that happening. I'll come back in a second. But in essence, the uh, proposal to keep us effectively in a customs area, um, indeterminate, I think is the phrase used, for an indeterminate period of time, well, actually, it could be a never-ending period of time because we can't decide to leave. It's a, it's, a, it's a decision in which the European Union has got to agree. So that's the first problem. could go on forever. Uh, second problem is we're tied into all sorts of regulatory 
concerns, in particular um, the so-called non-regression clause, which means we have to match uh, European Union law uh, over uh, employment law, over environmental law, over a whole series of bits of law. Again, ties our hands and, uh, 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 and takes away an opportunity for us. Uh, thirdly, actually, is a threat to the integrity of the United Kingdom. I mean, the proposals for Northern Ireland, effectively treating it separately, um, uh, is in defiance of, of, the, uh, uh, of the Good Friday Agreement because it doesn't take both, uh, both uh, communities on board. Uh, and, of course, it undermines, it undermines the position of Scottish Unionists because it will actually the, the Scot Matt will start saying, well, why can't we have yeah. this? You know? So a whole series of problems with it. Uh, and, frankly, I think it is... Uh, it's beyond the pale. I mean, we can, it doesn't seem to me that we, this can be rewritten to be right. We have to reset the whole thing and, uh, and go at it again. Excellent. And Owen, you've, you've had a lot of experience of, of negotiating things with the EU in the past. What, what's your view of this, this deal that the Prime Minister is, is offering? Oh, it is just so bad, it cannot be allowed to proceed. 17.4 uh, million people voted in an in-and-out referendum. They were told they were given deciding power they voted to leave. Uh, lots of Remainers then waved their arms around and said, what does leave mean? And the Prime Minister very helpfully confirmed that leave means leave the single market, leave the customs union, leave the remit of the European Court of Justice. And that was what was written into our manifesto, on which she, in fairness, got the second largest number of votes since John Major, far more than Tony Blair used to get in his so-called landslides. So it is, it is bitterly disappointing um, it completely fails on those three main points. Uh, we will be locked into the regulatory regime. As our share of trade with Europe goes down, it, it was over 60% of the, of the millennium. It's now about 45. It's going to be below 35. The European Union itself, the Commission, says that 95% of world growth is going to be outside the European Union. And as David just said, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to emerge from behind the wall of the, of the customs union and retake our place on all the world bodies and really drive through reform of world regulation being pro-technology because the European Union is quite extraordinarily hostile to modern technology and also to you know, propose policies at world level uh, which are pro-competition and pro-free trade. Um, and as David touched on very importantly, uh, it's, a, it's a grotesque breach of the uh, Belfast Agreement, the absolute key plank which got very large numbers of unionists to vote for the agreement and swallow some very difficult things um, was the principle of consent. And, as David Trimble has made very clear in an important paper last week, uh, give the Assembly, which as we know is currently suspended, but there are Assembly members there, give the Assembly a clear role. And neither of those are in this agreement. And that is really bad and has a possible very serious spin-off in Scotland. And then lastly, as David touched on, uh, there's no way out of this. Uh, at the moment, we're in a very clearly uh, legally binding uh, process under treaty, which is Article 50, which gave us the opportunity at any time, following the Treaty of Lisbon, to leave, according to our own constitutional arrangements, and there's a strict two-year period. On this, there's no clear way out. We could be in for decades, as the Norwegians have found with the EEA. They were supposed to, that was supposed to be a temporary arrangement, and they're still stuck, as the Turks have still found with their customs union arrangement. So that is really bad, and it's very, very expensive. We're going to cough up 39 billion sterling for the privilege of participating. If we get into the next financial round, which is the 31st December 
2020, we are locked into even higher sums of money. And these are real sums of money. A billion sterling buys you 20,000 nurses, it buys you 20,000 teachers, it buys you well over 20,000 soldiers, and we're going to spend 39 billion on just being participants in this whole operation. So it is a really, really bad deal. And it will cost us, because we used to be a pebble in the shoe when law was made. I'll end on this. Uh, I was involved in CAP negotiations when I was doing uh, DEFRA. We worked closely with certain allies on certain issues. We got some of the worst things stopped. It was not a good agricultural round, but we got some of the worst things stopped. And I was in Holland last week, and the Dutch made it very clear they will miss us, because law will now be cooked up by 27 countries. We will not be in the room. We will have to accept that law without amendment, without ability to repeal it. And that law will be a lot more costly. It's significant, the, the huge amount of money that will be transferred to, to Brussels. And Margaret Thatcher, when she was the, the Prime Minister, worked to get money going the other way back to, back to the UK. But all of this money is going to, to the EU. And uh, um, as you mentioned, at least £39 billion. Uh, billion pounds. Uh, Shankar, you've studied a, a large number of international trade deals and, and agreements. Um, what's your verdict on, on Theresa May's plan? Well, you know, I think we can get sort of lost in the day-to-day -day Brexitology of, uh, of the, or today, minute-to-minute -minute, um, uh, Brexitology. Um, I think sometimes it's useful to take a step back. David talked about this big opportunity here. And the Prime Minister, in fact, talked about this in her Lancaster House speech in, in, in um, 2017. Uh, she talked about a Brexit prize. Well, you know, what is that prize? Um, there is no, at least economically, not politically or for other reasons, but economically the prize is the ex ex exercise of your independent trade and regulatory policy. It's nothing else. If you don't have an independent trade and regulatory policy, then you are in a damage limitation exercise by definition. You are in a non-optimal situation by definition. Um, but from a US perspective or from any other country in the world perspective, this is a massive global event. You've got a G7 nation that's adopting trade policy for the first time, independent trade policy for the first time in 40-plus years. This has never happened before with any country of any serious size, and it will never happen again. Uh, at least we assume it will never happen again. Um, so this is a huge global opportunity. Why is it a global opportunity? Because, as David said, the direction of travel of global Regulation is negative. We've increased global protectionism around the world dramatically since the financial crisis. We have uh, the, the global trading system is stalled. We've seen very little services liberalization. We've seen very little uh, trade liberalization seriously uh, in the last uh, 23 years. No concluded round in the WTO for 23 years, which is a third of the lifetime of the gap. And unsurprisingly, economic indicators as a result are very poor. Now, when somebody like Christine Lagarde says, we're going to have a 2%, you know, developed countries can expect a new normal of 2% growth um, forever. That that's a good result. It's because it's not, you know, the fault lies not in our, in our stars, but in ourselves. It's because we constantly are increasing regulatory barriers. We're increasing protectionism. Uh, as Azevedo said recently, you know, not only are we going in the wrong direction, but we are accelerating. So this is the context for this decision. And this is why the prize is so big. So from a US perspective, where you have a global regulatory battleground, where the EU's direction of travel is increasingly anti-competitive and prescriptive for reasons that Owen mentioned, not just in agriculture, but in goods and in product regulation. Um, you have China imposing its regulatory system 
uh, on it uh, near abroad. And you have the EU also imposing its regulatory system through things like GDPR and so on. So this is the background in which we are fa faced. And in that context, the UK adopting independent trade and regulatory policy um, is a massive global event. It represents huge opportunities. And if I was the US, I would, want, I would not want to be a spectator in this process. I would want to be an active participant to ensure that I could have another ally, or at least one ally, on the global stage that promoted um, competition, pro-competitive regulatory systems, open trade, all of the things that, that we would need to have. And there are countries that the UK can reach that the US perhaps can't reach uh, in ways that we can, uh, countries like China and India and so on. Um, in terms of trade agreements that we might be able to do with them to correct distortions in, in, in their market. So I see terrific opportunities with this, with this moment. Now, then you go to the withdrawal agreement, and you say, well, what does the withdrawal agreement do to those opportunities? Well, first of all, the backstop, which is a treaty. It's very important to understand this. This is not a political declaration. This is a treaty that we will be signed up to. It's a treaty that puts Northern Ireland in the European Single Market and Customs Union and the UK in a customs union with the EU. It puts the UK uh, and, it, and the withdrawal agreement specifically says that for the future relationship, um, that customs union relationship will be the basis for a customs arrangement between the UK and the EU, where we will be part of one customs territory. This means you have no trade policy. And you can only get out of it if the EU agrees. So therefore, it becomes a negotiating part of the negotiating mechanics. We want to have a comprehensive trade deal with the EU that has lots of regulatory cooperations, lots of customs facilitations, and Irish border facilitations. They also want that. That has been their offer to the UK. We must be able to agree um, between ourselves a a landing zone, but they will have no incentive to meet us halfway if the default, if we fail to get an agreement, is basically for us to be locked into the customs union with full regulatory alignment with European regulation. And it means that no country can do trade deals with us. It means that terrific opportunity of having a global player, second biggest exporter of services, one of the biggest sites of foreign investment, one of the biggest foreign investors in the world, completely irrelevant in terms of international trade policy, completely irrelevant in terms of foreign policy, really, um, uh, and increasingly uh, simply a mini version uh, of the EU. So, so I think if you look at all the things we could do in our trade policy in international fora, trade agreements, accession to the TPP, all of the things that um, actually, to, to, to the credit of um, the Department for International Trade, are very much on the table for the UK right now. All of them are completely taken off the table by this deal. Well, that's a pretty devastating uh, critique. And, um, <laughs> uh, and clearly on the US side, um, the Trump administration should be very concerned about, about this deal, what it means for, um, for a US-UK free trade agreement in the future of the special relationship. Could you comment on that, um, uh, David, uh, in terms of the impact on a potential US-UK free trade deal? It's now going to be likely far more difficult to oh, secure uh, an agreement. Even, even impossible? Possibly? Yeah, I think probably impossible. I mean, the, what's been interesting talking to US officials just on this trip, uh, let alone previous ones, 
is that their view is that you know, we are basically, contrary to what Obama said, we're at the front of the queue for a new trade deal. They've already started the 90-day process. Yeah. Uh, they're, in, they're in a good position, really, to start talking Turkey in uh, the, end of, the end of March, well, it's March 30th. Um, so that opportunity is sitting there, ready to go. Biggest possible trade deal that we could do with any one country. Uh, but to do a trade deal, you've got to be able to negotiate with uh, your opposite number on external tariffs. We can't do that. You've got to be able to negotiate on regulation and market access, and which are the two sides of the same coin. We can't do that. So you know, it's, uh, at one level, it's a trade deal that takes 10 seconds to do because there's nothing you can do in it. So, so it has thrown away a, a big opportunity. Can I add one other thing, Niall, just, just listening to, to my two colleagues talk here? Um, and it's the poverty or the, or the, the weakness of the negotiation that we've, we've got ourselves into. Um, Owen mentioned the 39 billion. What we've done is we've, uh, well, hasn't, we haven't agreed it yet, but if we were to agree this deal, we would be agreeing to a 39 billion pig in a poke. There is no future commitment, the, uh, uh, or no, no future commitment that we would, uh, we would like to see in terms of future economic partnership. We have got our fingers in the mangle uh, in terms of being pulled into further and further in because the customs, the temporary customs arrangement is listed as being basically, in my words, the foundation for the next stage. So actually we're going to, we're going to be tied in with this, this procedure in the long run. And also, I mean, the, during the course of the negotiation, the European Union kept saying, well, we're going to do the withdrawal agreement first and the future partnership second, right? All the future economic stuff. But actually, in the withdrawal agreement are all the things they want. GIs, the, um, <laughs> the geographic indicators, the, uh, you know, feta cheese and all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, you, can only, you can't have Wisconsin feta, you can only have Greek feta or whatever. Um, the, all of that's already in there. So we've, we've somehow allowed them to load up the withdrawal agreement with all the things they want. So we've got no levers later on. Uh, so we couldn't even, to go back to our would-be American trade deal, we couldn't even use a lever against the European Union to let them let us alter something to fit the American interest. Can't even do that because all those levers have been taken away. So at several levels, it's very poor and it shuts off spectacular opportunities. If you are running a company rather than a country, if you are running a company and your company had gone from 60% of its trade with one class of customer and 40% with customer B, and it switched around, and customer B was now 60% growing the biggest. So you'd be focusing on customer B. Well, for, for us, that's Europe and the rest of the world. Europe was 60%, now down to 45, I think it is. The rest of the world, 55, climbing to, four, uh, to 60, and then probably 70 in due course. Uh, we are absolutely shutting ourselves off from our best future, uh, and that includes America. Strikes me as a sort of spectacular own goal, actually, on the on the British side, considering the amount of enthusiasm there is on the U.S. side for mm. for a free trade mm. uh, agreement, including support in the in the White House, but also several uh, congressional resolutions already backing a U.S.-U.K. Mm. free trade uh, deal. Uh, Owen, would you like to um, comment further on this? Oh, yeah, it's well? absolutely tragic. I mean, yeah. <laughs> because. I can't think of two countries which are better suited to work with each other. You know, the US worked with us. There's no sort of dive to the bottom. We've got very similar standards, very similar regulatory um, costs, uh, wage rates, 
Uh, we're each the largest investor in each, each other's country. We each employ over a million of each other's citizens. Uh, somehow, by a quirk of statistics, we each have a surplus with the other one, which I didn't quite follow, but, uh, and it's growing. Accounting problem. Yeah, <laughs> but it is, it is growing. And as David just said, as I've just said, and, you know, don't forget, our, our, our sales to the EU, are, only 8% of British companies sell to the EU. It's 12% of our GDP. And uh, what, what is so tragic about the whole thing, it's all got snarled up with the excuse of the Irish border. So President Tusk made a generous free trade offer to us back in March, which founded on the issue of the Irish border, because nobody looked at how it could be solved, apart from somehow bullying the, the UK into say, staying in some form of customs union arrangement with all the costs involved. And we've been working very carefully on this, and Shank has done a very important paper the year on a free trade deal, uh, we and the European Research Group produced a paper on how you would use existing techniques, existing processes under existing EU law to continue trading, not just across the Irish border, but across uh, Calais Dover as well. And everything we've had in that paper I saw endorsed last week um, in Rotterdam. I was there for two days. And what is a complete nonsense is this statement we're getting out of the government that there is no alternative. There is a very clear alternative, and that is to embrace the offer from Tusk but to solve the alleged problems on the Irish border with existing techniques and processes, all of which work this afternoon. They're working very well. And that's the most frustra frustrating thing about it all. And if we did that, then bang, we wouldn't just be doing free trade deals with the United States, the largest economy in the world. We would, that would open up Japan, the Pacific, and we would be flying. And we've, we've seen that with other smaller countries. It's absolutely remarkable how successful really very small economies like New Zealand and Australia have been once they can get going and work closely with countries like China doing free trade deals. Yes. Huge increase in trade. And so the, the May deal really, is, it's very bad news for the United States as well as for, uh, well as for Britain. And, uh, and, and Shankar, you, you've studied this U.S.-U.K. free trade uh, issue extremely uh, uh, closely. Could, could you comment on, on the impact of this, uh, of, of the May deal on, um, on the prospects for U.S.-U.K. free trade? Well, I think you said to, 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 to David, does it make it impossible? I think it does make it impossible. Uh, if you look at what the U.S. asks are, are typically are in any trade deal, um, they are things like, um, and I was a clear advisor to the U.S. government on, on um, um, regulatory issues, TBT, SPS, uh, and so on. And the main issues are regulatory. They are regulatory with respect to goods. It's not just agri agriculture. Uh, it's goods, it's product regulation, it's European standards, um, it's agri-food and uh, SPS issues on, on agriculture. Um, and then to some extent, we'll have a back and forth on services and defense and other things where we have much more uh, in alignment. Um, but if you systematically take all those major asks of the U.S. off the table and you say, well, I'm sorry, we can't negotiate on, on goods because uh, we've just committed ourselves through treaty harmonization to the EU rulebook or uh, we can't give you anything on agriculture because we've done the same thing with the EU rulebook, then fairly quickly the U.S. will rightly say, well, what can you do? And if we can't, and if we want big things from the U.S.-U.K. FTA, which we do, uh, the U.S. is not the most open country on financial services. Um, the U.K. is very open on financial services. We would want to see more access there. We have a unique situation there, by the way, because we have regulators in New York, Washington, and London that are um, 
have, have more trust than any group of regulators anywhere on earth. So, uh, and are used to working together, which is not the case with the EU. Um, so we ought to be able to get very high-level uh, deals uh, in those areas. Uh, defense is another area where, where we have a common approach uh, here and we could agree uh, essentially that the UK would be part, as the Australians and the Canadians are already doing, uh, to be part of a common defense area so that uh, US regulation in defense is less anti-competitive and less distortive. And I know the Heritage Foundation has done a lot of work on that particular uh, area. So um, I think there are a lot of you know, and there are, there are asks that we, would that we would seek to make on government procurement and other areas where we would want um, the U.S. to give us quite a lot. Um, and we will not be able to get anything. We will not be able to get any of those unless we are able to have maximum control over our tariff schedules and maximum regulatory autonomy. And if we don't have either of those, and this deal takes both of those away, um, then the U.S. will rightly turn around and say, well, you're just a mini version of the EU and you're not very interesting. I think this is the greatest tragedy of this deal, is it, it takes a country that could have been a major player in solving major global problems and it, and it makes it completely irrelevant for generations. Yes. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's astonishing... Um how the how the British government has sort of undermined the British um, position, really, vis-a-vis -vis I mean, This is a very uh, good point, Niall, yeah. because one of the things that, that Barnier said in his uh, press conference, and I believe it's true, is that we did these things because the UK asked us for them. Yeah. That is a shocking statement. Absolutely extraordinary. And uh, in many ways, this deal um, is a, a victory for the, for the EU yeah. uh, over over British strategic um, interests, and that's certainly how it's being uh, being portrayed by many of its critics. And we saw today the resignation of two cabinet ministers, um, Dominic Rabb, Esther McVeigh, and also several uh, junior ministers as well. Um, there will be, if, if indeed uh, this moves forward, uh, a likely vote in the House of Commons um, December 10th on the, uh, the Theresa May uh, proposal. Uh, how likely um, do you think, David, that this uh, proposal will be defeated in the House of Commons if it goes, if it actually gets to that, that stage? Yeah, if it gets that far. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's very likely to be defeated. I mean, uh, just, just the sort of tactics of it, frankly, the Labour Party, uh, who are important in, in this context, have taken a stance which has been quite aggressively critical of it. Almost a Eurosceptic stance, which is quite amusing from, from them, um, but uh, an aggressively critical stance. Uh, a large number of Conservatives are against it, leavers like Owen and myself, very much so, but actually quite a few Remainers too. I mean, you know, it, it, is, it is no source of pride for somebody who believes in staying in the European Union for us to be the rule takers uh, uh, in perpetuity. Um, so it, it, it's a failure there. There's also one other thing which we haven't mentioned uh, in this context of our role in the world. Um, the most, one of the most important things that's happened to poverty in the world at large is the impact of free trade. Uh, free trade has lifted billions out of abject poverty, probably saved millions, many millions of lives uh, in the last few decades. The best exponents of free trade tend to be countries like ourselves, 
America, Canada. I mean, the, 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 if you like, the common law countries, the countries for whom freedom is a very big central issue. Um, and uh, what, what we've done here is taken the sort of keystone out of the arch, uh, or the potential arch. Uh, in this respect. So there's a big moral case as well. So uh, uh, when, when, when some Europeans think about this, they may think, actually, this is a little bit of an old goal, even for them, even for them. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, and if, in, if indeed the, uh, the proposal is defeated um, in the Commons, what, what, happens, uh, what happens next? And a question of both David and of Owen, Owen as well. Well, we, we, need to reset, we need to go back and reset it. I mean, we need to go back and say, okay, that doesn't work. Now, if you want your 39 billion and you want all the other bits and pieces of the withdrawal agreement that at least we can tolerate, um, then you have to, you know, you, you, you have to talk to us again on a different basis. Now, uh, both Owen and uh, Shankar have been involved in lots and lots of very important work, whether it's the Northern Ireland border or whether it's or borders generally, or whether it's the so-called Plan A+. What Plan A plus is, is, is the best possible free trade deal based pretty much entirely on, on European precedents. So they can't turn around and say, well, you can't have that. We say, well, you've done it with, you've done it with uh, uh, South Korea, or you've done it with Canada, or you've done it with South, South Africa. Uh, and if we do that, and we'll have something which is ready to go, I think uh, we, can, we can bring it back, bring them back to the table and do it again. But it won't be easy. It won't be easy. It will be extremely stressful the next three months, because you know, we'll be on the brink of a no-deal outcome, and although I'm, I, don't, I don't fear no-deal, I think it's not the best option, don't fear it, uh, the Europeans and a lot of the British government do fear it, do fear it a lot. Yes. Um, Owen? Well, we absolutely have to defeat yeah. it. It is, it is um, so bad, not just for the country, but as, as we've touched on, world free trade. Um, and I think we will defeat it in the Commons, what is really important is we get across our alternative. It, it is complete nonsense. It's this or nothing. And we, we're getting this slightly odd narrative that uh, you either live with this or you don't get Brexit at all, or you live with this and you, quote, crash out. Now, it's perfectly obvious, optimal, would be to have a very wide-ranging free trade deal as, uh, as um, the IEA have come up with. That's obviously much the best uh, arrangement, which would allow us to do free trade deals with the US and everything else. Uh, but I, I'm like David, I'm not, I'm not that alarmed by world trade terms, because that is significantly better than where we are now with this proposal. I mean, it's absolutely clear. I would much prefer to get to the 29th of March with no deal and be out on world trade terms where we can at least decide our tariffs. Everyone assumes we're going to rocket the tariffs. We don't, we'd be very stupid to do that, in my thinking. Uh, but at least we will be in control of our own money. We wouldn't be paying the 39 billion. We wouldn't be paying the, what was it going to be, 20 billion if we get into the next payment round. Uh, we would have complete control of our regulation and we have complete control of our, our tariff schedules. So that's, that's not a bad start. The idea of all this stuff, this, this hysterics about queues at Dover, um, who says we're going to stop the trucks? Uh, we know perfectly well that the car parts coming from Germany conform. We know perfectly well that the cheese coming from France conforms. Uh, why are they suddenly going to start putting nasties in it? And we get back to this utter nonsense we have with borders, that the vast majority of goods these days are pre-cleared. So I was in Rotterdam last week. I saw content, the most contentious products are food products. So of the 30,000 containers of chilled and frozen uh, fish and meat, in theory, the European Union, well, in practice, says 100% are cleared. Correct. 
but not at the border. The border inspection post is 40 kilometers from where the containers land. And the process is nearly all a paper intelligence-based process. So yes, the container goes to the border inspection post, but the inspection is carried out on the paperwork. Is it a respectful company? Is this New Zealand shipper, which they've been dealing with for years with proper veterinary practices? Or is it from somewhere else, possibly South America, where there might be a problem with foot and mouth? If, there's, if it's the latter category, that's probably 2 to 3%. Of, even of those, the 2 to 3%, only about 10% of those are actually checked. So this is how borders work these days. Borders are tax points. They're not inspection points. And so I'm not, I'm not really... A lot of this is project fear. We got about project fear mark at least seven. seven or eight by now. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not so worried about that. Much the best would be to have an all-embracing free trade deal. So if we can get rid of this awful proposal yesterday, just get that voted down, we could want to move on rapidly to what we're proposing which we have gone through in detail and had endorsed by real experts. It, it, it may be of interest to, to, to your audience, because, I mean, they weren't, they weren't have, have, have followed all the British press on this. Or but we've had scare stories in the last six months about running out, running out of insulin. Well, we're not going to run out of insulin. I mean, we've talked to the companies, and they're, they're perfectly happy. Of uh, running out of food, you know, that's vaguely ridiculous. You know, we, we've had uh, five-week uh, French lorry driver strikes completely blocked up. Uh, the, the Dover-Calais uh, link, and we didn't run out of anything, frankly. The th two things to say. Number one, um, on this question of dealing across borders, north of here, um, northwest of here, uh, uh, Detroit, you've got the US, a big chunk of the US car industry, Ford in particular there. Just north of them, in Ontario, southwest Ontario, there is a huge industry, of a huge supply chain industry, all of which comes across the choke point in Detroit. You know, it comes across, a, uh, I think, a tunnel and two bridges from memory. Uh, but they still work perfectly well. The, the, the biggest selling pickup truck in the world, uh, the Ford pickup truck, all of its engines are made in Windsor over the border. Now, if there were real problems in dealing with borders and just-in-time systems, they wouldn't do it. Ford would be very ruthless <coughs> about that. They wouldn't do it. So it, it could be done. Second point to make on the French. A lot of people presume that the French are going to be difficult and awkward with us. You know, they're, they're going to you know, sort of start the Hundred Years' War or something. I mean, it's some ridiculous uh, sort of concerns. The thing to understand is we do hear a lot of sort of, um, as I say, robust language, put it politely, um, robust language from, uh, from the French government. But when you look at what's happening locally, you know, you'll find the, uh, they're making special arrangements to reduce the inspection rate on, on, uh, on vehicles coming through. They're making special arrangements to have fast pass arrangements. So this is classification of drivers so that they know the driver is trustworthy. You know. uh, same, as you have, same as you have on the, on the US border. They're making special arrangements. They're picking places outside town, just like Rotterdam, to do uh, animal inspections if needed. Uh, and, and so on and so on. There's a whole series of things going on uh, in, in order to facilitate this. So when it comes to it, there may be a hiccup or two in, in the first year if we have a sort of no-deal outcome. Uh, but they will be resolved quite quickly because it's very much yeah, in their own interest to do so. Second thing, or the last thing I'll say about, uh, uh, about the so-called no-deal outcome, the WTO outcome, is that it probably won't last. That actually, uh, if, if there are any hiccups, the Europeans will be negotiating with us to get the free trade deal. You know, so it will, it will very, very quickly morph into a free trade deal after the event with any pressures that, that arise. So it's not something to fear. It's not the best outcome. It's not what I would pick, but it's definitely not something to be afraid of.
I think, I think the problem is that we've allowed ourselves to become trapped into a very legalistic process. And we're worrying about the number of angels dancing on the head of a pin and time-looped backstops to backstops, etc. This is all nonsense. And I think if we can... Um, what we need to do is to reset this process so that we can have a sensible, pragmatic, political track approach to this problem. And I mean, all of us, I think, have spent a significant amount of time now with Michel Barnier. I think we all would agree that the Europeans, um, had we presented a, um, and, and if we present, uh, sensible free trade agreement-based proposals based on their own offer, which, as I say, which I repeat, is a free trade agreement with the whole of the UK, with regulatory cooperations, customs facilitations, and Irish border facilitations. That is their offer. It remains their offer, contrary to what the government in the UK has said. Um, if we could build on that, then I think we can get a successful result. And what we have to do, though, is honour their, their desire, uh, which we have not done so far, for uh, the integrity of their single market and customs union. As long as we do that, then I think there is a basis for a, a, a deal. I think um, looking forward to the next two, four weeks, um, there's going to be chaos in the UK. There's going to be turbulence. There's going to be a lot of China smashed on the floor and so on. And it's easy to think... Yeah, Gordon that, Brown doesn't work there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's easy to think that this is a bad thing. It's easy to read the headlines and think, oh, this is a terrible thing. Uh, I, I would suggest that the terrible thing would be to actually make the UK completely irrelevant in trade policy terms, uh, damage the UK economy, make it a rule taker for generations. I suspect the only way that we can have this reset is to actually allow this legalistic process to hit the buffers, to take a step back and say, no, we made a mistake. We've wasted a lot of time, but here's what we both want to do. Here's what we both want to achieve. Uh, let's get on with the work of negotiating a sensible free trade agreement. And here, I think, our allies, who have done everything we have asked of them, the Americans have done everything that we've asked of them, the Japanese have done everything, mostly everything, that we've Up asked the beginning. of them. Uh, I mean, they've asked now, they've said very clearly they want the UK to be in the CPTPP. They want us to uh, submit a letter as, as early as January. They want us to be one of the earliest countries to be members of the TPP. Majority popular vote called a border poll. And a border poll can only be called when the Secretary of State thinks that there is a chance of a united Ireland winning. Well, that's not happened. Yesterday, there was just a unilateral announcement. The cabinet was bullied. They were expected to read 700 pages or whatever it was in three hours. Weren't even allowed to take a copy away. That is a flagrant breach of the most important core of the Belfast Agreement. And having gone there a lot and seeing the enormous benefits we've got from the peace process, the extraordinary cooperation we got from the bipartisan approach in Dublin, the bipartisan approach in London, the bipartisan approach here in Washington, you know, the, 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 the human gains in Ireland are absolutely colossal and to be taken very, very seriously. And I do believe yesterday is far more of a threat and all this talk about the border, which is simply not going to happen. Yeah. Can I, since the yes. was so kind uh, about me, let me just make one or two sort of factual comments about the background, because the rest of your, the ambassador obviously knows this, but the rest of the audience may not. Um, since 1923, uh, British citizens in Ireland and Irish citizens in the UK have been treated, identically, yeah. have been treated identically. 
1949 Act, I think, so health care, pensions, whatever it may be, you're treated exactly the same. Uh, this is an incredibly important part of our relationship. Uh, and it's a very close relationship. I mean, when Ireland had its um, uh, financial problems some years ago, I think it was three or four billion we, we, we loaned as well. Um, why? Because we see, we see uh, Ireland being very closely related to us. And I have to say, I mean, it's, it's having a bit of a hiccup at the moment, but I think modern times has really been seen as a golden era of, of Anglo-Irish relationships. And when the Queen came, it was a spectacular success. Um, and I'm hoping we're going to see a, a return to that. When I said earlier, by the way, that um, you know, I, I wasn't afraid of the no-deal outcome, one thing I would say is, and one of the reasons I don't think it's the optimum outcome or the best outcome, is actually that it would put the Irish rural economy at risk. It will put other countries at risk in other ways, you know, Belgium and, and uh, the Netherlands and so on. Uh, and these are our friends. The, you know, we're, you know, we're leaving the European Union, but we're not. Uh, leaving our friends behind. These are our friends and allies. And it's very, very important we think about their interests as well as our own. If I can add Thank something, because we've done a lot of work on the Irish border. Um, uh, I think uh, there are, and you know, you can read a lot of the stuff that we've done at the IEA on, on, on technical solutions to the Irish border. And I, I agree with you that the goal should be not to harden the border in ways that damage the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process. And that should be our goal. I think We've been somewhat sidetracked by this rather ludicrous backstop discussion. What we should be focused on is what's the permanent solution to ensure that that, uh, that result can be achieved uh, and the Irish border can be preserved in that way, um, or the current arrangements can be preserved in that way. Um, and the heart of that is agreeing a modern customs and trade facilitation chapter, because as Owen says, um, never mind the Irish border, in customs generally around the world, in border management generally around the world, we are moving away from inspecting goods and tying forms to the transfer of goods to systems-based processes where you tie the uh, inspections and the intelligence to the actual trader. Now, in, across the Irish border, you have a very unusual situation where you have a very, very limited number of large company trade um, you have trade across the border, Republic of Ireland trade with mainland GB, Northern Ireland trade with mainland GB, both of those dwarf cross-border trade. But what you do have across the border is a lot of high-frequency, high-volume trade that lends itself to those kinds of facilitations and techniques. One of the things the British government has said, um, which I think is disingenuous um, to the Europeans, is that we want a, an exemption for all these small traders. Well, obviously that that cuts into their single market and customs union. Um, but all of these small traders um, are filling in VAT forms anyway, because there is a VAT border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. So actually, uh, uh, having a system where they do fill in forms, but they add a column to their VAT form, is a way of lowering the, um, the, the perception of the, the hardening that border. Now, We've proposed 50 technical solutions that we think all taken together would work to um, not harden the Irish border, but none of these will work unless the people of the island of Ireland actually believe in them and politically, diplomatically believe in them. So I think it's very important for pragmatic people on both sides of the border to come together about a permanent solution, never mind the backstop and the legalisms of the uh, way that we're, being ne we're negotiating. These are, these are people's lives. We need to get beyond this, and we need to say, look, if, if pragmatic people on both sides of the border think this sort of system can work, then we need to be able to deliver it. And I think it is um, 
it is eminently deliverable. And in fact, I'd go further and say, actually, because of the nature of the Irish border, um, the kinds of solutions that could be applied on it ultimately could be applied to the management of all UK borders. Not, not immediately, but ultimately. And I, I think that should be a goal of um, both the EU and the UK government. Yeah, thanks, uh, Shankar, for that. And um, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, and um, I, um, I'll, ask, I'll ask a question over here um, first, and then I'll ask a final question at the end. Please go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Uh, Damien Life for the Daniel Morgan School of National Security. Um, so I just want to ask perhaps a broad question, but to what extent do you agree with the fact that the negotiations were destined to fail and not produce the desired outcome before they'd even begun because of the distinction made between soft Brexit and hard Brexit? And that distinction was made. And if, if so, why, wasn't, why, why was it not possible to, to combat this kind of distinction being made? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question. Uh, what was apparent from the beginning of this negotiating process is going to, it was going to be very unusual because it was done basically on a public stage, you know, with all of the prepositions taken uh, in public and therefore you're bound to get clashes where somebody's got to back down. Uh, and at the same time, you've got large numbers of people in Britain who didn't like the process at all and therefore they're the ones who primarily were going on about soft and hard Brexit and so on. Um, the truth is it's incredibly hard to define what people mean by soft and hard Brexit. A hard Brexit is something that Remainer disapproves of. <laughs> you know, it could be anything. Um, what we were looking to do, and we tried to repeat this argument over and over again, um, uh, that uh, we're looking for the best possible Brexit and, that, and define that by one that gives us the freedom to do what we need to do, gives us the opportunity to go out into the world uh, and, and so on. So uh, it, was, it, you know, it, from, it wasn't destined to fail, but it was destined to be difficult. There's, 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 uh, there's no two ways about that. What I do regret about the process uh, is something else, and that is that because it went the way it did, we, people like me were spending all our time, if you like, on what you might think of as defensive arguments. You know, it's not going to do this harm, it's not going to do that harm. It's not Whereas actually the most important arguments about Brexit, about the opportunities, the, the, the gains, the possibilities. And, and they're not all, they're not all economic. There are, there are other gains in terms of you know, the, the way the country sees itself, the way the country thinks about itself. Um, uh, and, you know, I was reading a, uh, an, uh, an article the, the other day about all of the other things, sort of almost the accidental benefits of Brexit. So it wasn't destined to fail. It won't fail. It will be scary. I mean, it will be, you know, people will be sweating a bit when we get to the end. Uh, I was once criticised by, um, uh, by, the, by the London Times. Uh, I went on a radio programme and the, and the uh, commentator said to me, he said, well, what's the most important thing about your job? Is it knowing the detail of the, of the European law? Is it you know, being a great negotiating tactician? Is it? And he went through a whole series of things. And I said, no, none of the above. And uh, he said, well, what is it? I said, being calm. Yeah. Being calm. <laughs> and the London Times uh, uh, dedicated a whole editorial to attacking me for, for saying being calm is important, but it is. Yeah. We will go through some very stressful times, but as long as we keep our eye on the final target, the final target is to achieve the benefits that we want to achieve and also make sure that all our friends and allies come out of it well too, then we'll get there. Well, I think that's, that's an excellent point to, to bring the discussion to an end. Unless, just, actually, Owen and Shankar have a, have a quick like, word. I would like to make one point. <laughs> this is a constitutional novelty for us. 
So in the past, whenever we've had a referendum in the UK, the establishment has called the referendum and has happily had the establishment view endorsed. So staying in the European community in 72, uh, the devolution uh, referendums in uh, Northern Ireland, uh, Scotland and Wales, and Wales by the most tiny, tiny margin, but still, happily, the result was what the establishment wanted. We had the AV referendum under the coalition. It didn't go the way the Liberal Democrats wanted it, but broadly, the establishment liked it. For the first time ever, the people have given the wrong answer. And the establishment is appalled. And of course, there's a tradition in Europe of ignoring the results when they go wrong and telling people to go away and have another think. So there have been 48 referendums uh, since the community was established in Europe, all of which endorsed further integration. Complete silence. I think there have been, what, three that went the wrong way. Ireland, uh, Denmark, France, and, 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 and Holland. And uh, they were told to go away and, and come up with the right answer. And there's this wonderful, I think it's Juncker quote, isn't there? You know, if they say yes, on we go. If they say no, we tell them to think again. And I think to the horror of the European establishment, for the first time it looked as if we were going to stick to this. What did not help was significant members of the UK establishment constantly going over, you know, Mr. Blair, who's totally discredited in the UK, but he seemed to be a serious figure in the commission, going over and undermining the efforts of the government. So, as, as David said, there's been this extraordinary pantomime going on the whole time. You did not have clean result, 70.4 million, bang, we're going to deliver it. You've had a constant run of criticism and carping and going over and over and over all the tired old arguments of the referendum. And I think that has been very, very damaging to the process. Yeah, Shaggy, I, I the think, final word. Yeah, I, I think, um, first of all, I agree with you. There is no such thing as soft Brexit and hard Brexit. Like, this kind of language is it's not like some you know, boiled egg or something. I mean, it, this is a serious process, and we have to apply serious thinking and serious analysis to it. Unfortunately, I think one of the effects of um, uh, the UK's EU membership over this time, with respect to trade policy at least, and certain other areas, is that there has been a hollowing out of UK institutions, and the ability to have that critical think, apply that critical thinking, I think has been lost. It's a lot easier to, to, to speculate about who the Prime Minister is going to be than to actually deal with the hard details and mm. substance of what we need to be talking about. And there's all this nonsense about soft... I am constantly called a hard Brexiteer, despite the fact that I was the first person, even before the government, who called for an interim period in February of 2017. I have consistently called for a free trade agreement with the UK and the EU. Um, that is based on maximal regulatory cooperation and facilitations. So if I'm a hard Brexit here, what, what, is, you know, what is the alternative? Um, so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, unfortunately it's been a complete waste of time. We have also wasted an enormous amount of time negotiating with ourselves. It, it's, a, it's an irony of a sort of you know, um, fog in channel continent, um, continent you know, cut off. Um, that we have this weird combination of being almost terrified uh, and, and lacking in confidence of our own ability to, um, to survive on the global stage, while at the same time coming up ourselves with ridiculous arrangements that don't make any international trading sense like the facilitated customs arrangement, uh, by ourselves, like in a room by ourselves, uh, without any uh, paying any attention to our trading partners or, or the EU. So all of this has to change. You know, we have to have serious people who are applying serious thinking to this. 
We have to stop bifurcating the EU policy from the rest of the world policy. International trade policy is a single whole. We have to have a single mind over all of it, so trade-offs and read-across uh, can be done. Now, I think that if we do those things, if we actually change uh, direction, um, if we start recognizing the European interest in protection of their single market and customs union, and we start negotiating from there, I am absolutely certain we will get a comprehensive trade deal of some description. We may not get everything we want. We may not get every regulatory co cooperation we want, but we will get a trade deal. It will be workable. It will be worked on in the future. Um, and we will have the ability to execute uh, an independent trade policy with the rest of the world. So I have no doubt that uh, that, is, that is possible and we can achieve uh, those goals. But, um, but it will require a change of direction. It will not happen on the current trajectory. Thank you very much, uh, Shankar. And it's been a terrific uh, discussion, a uh, very timely discussion. One thing's certain, it's going to be a real roller coaster ride in London in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, and uh, uh, we're very grateful for our, our three uh, tremendous uh, speakers for joining us today at such an important uh, time. And we very much hope that you will come back to Heritage again in the very, in the very uh, near future. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you as well to our audience for coming today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you, Ambassador. How are you?